This is Hearts of Oak Podcast. Free speech, religious disagreement, children's rights, and open and free discussion on any topic are bedrock to a democratic free society, and we seek to promote and champion these basic rights. Join us. Let's keep the conversation going. And hello, Hearts of Oak. Thank you so much for joining us once again on another interview. And once again, it's a pre-record, so this is a few days before you will receive it. And it is a guest who I've seen on many programs. He was on David Vance the other week. Who better to have on than someone who's been on with David Vance, good friend of ours, and that is Dr. David Cartland. Dr. Cartland, thank you for your time today. Hi, Peter. Thanks for having me. Pleasure as always to uh, to speak out. Great to have you on. And if I can just touch on a little bit, Dr. Cartland, uh, on his, I think on, on Getter, I think you're too hot for Twitter, aren't you? Are you on Twitter still? Yeah, we'll touch on that. Yeah, so I'm too hot for everything, to be honest. I've been I've been suspended from Twitter four times. I've been spend, suspended from LinkedIn, although they've just reinstated me, but I've got to be on my best behaviour. Um, okay. Inst- Instagram have banned me and Facebook have banned me. You know, a multitude of 30-day bans now permanently suspended. And you know what, just to, just to tag on to that, everything I do is post data, references, citations. So to get banned from Facebook for posting the Lancet Journal or the British Medical Journal, you know, is you know, a heinous crime. But, you know, I've done my time. <laughs> Crazy times we live in when you report what is true, report what the government are putting out and uh, you, because you have a, uh, a comment or response to it. But let me just let our viewers know you're a resigned GP who Facebook and Twitter love to censor. We'll get more into that. Reporter of clinical observations, uh, COVID-8, spreader of misinformation and dangerous propaganda and a Christian. And that is on your getter handle. So under you at Dr. Cartland, that is where the viewers can follow you on Getter, uncensored, giving your opinion, your thoughts, and your analysis of what is happening. So that's one of the probably the best place to follow you. And I know that's one place you won't get kicked off or cancelled. But Dr. Cartley, can I maybe ask you, as as always, just with our guests, if I can just ask you to take a moment and maybe introduce yourself and start, because again, the issues we talk about are often issues here of of medical issues, especially when you go on to COVID and the response to it. So maybe you'd like just take a minute or two and mm-hmm. uh, introduce yourself to our viewers before we jump into the topic. Yeah, so as you mentioned, um, I'm a, a GP actually. So I'm a GP that works sort of in Cornwall at the moment. I've just moved down to Cornwall from the Midlands. So did sort of half of the pandemic in, in the Midlands in Birmingham and then moved down to Cornwall for a better life. Really, that was a work-life balance decision. Been a GP now since 2014 and a doctor since 2008. Um, prior to that, I was um, a scientist, so I did a degree in biomedical science with a sort of heavy weighting towards immunology and virology and microbiology. And there's a little bit in between where I did some published science, so kind of lots of strings to the bow, really, and uh, hopefully allowed a couple of minutes of uh, even the hardened vaxaholics time, really. But yeah, aside from that, yeah, I'm a family man. I'm living down Cornwall, you know, living the dream, doing a two and a half day a week um, on the beach for most of the other time and wasn't looking for any of this. Um, it's all kind of, I've stumbled across, upon um, flawed science, flawed logic, you know, utter lunacy it's in some areas of med- medical practice at the moment. And, and I've called it out really as part of the oath that I took when I qualified as a doctor. So yeah, in summary, family man, very much part-time GP, didn't like what I saw. So in the end resigned 
from practice. I've gone back into it at the moment, actually, but there's another story we can talk about later. I'm currently suspended from my current hospital for not wearing a mask in a heat wave. <laughs> the, the original rebel of medicine. <laughs> I've been suspended for four weeks for, for, for not wearing a mask in the 32 degree heat. So Madness. Your, your kind of story is uh, like quite a, a number for guests on this issue that they're living their life. They weren't seeking to get engaged, but just what they saw, they they couldn't keep quiet on. But maybe can you tell us what your life was as a, as a GP, as a doctor back in normality? So kind of 2018, 2019, uh, what was kind of your life like as a GP? Yeah, I think over the years since I qualified, really, in 2014, you know, it's built up and up in terms of how busy it is. So as a GP, I don't just do the 9 till 6.30 daytime GP in family medicine. I kind of work it across a number of um, arenas. So I work as an A&E GP, an out-of-hours GP, urgent care GP, remote GP, so doing telemedicine, um, and, uh, and, and, the, and the bog standard family medicine as well, 9 till 6.30, as I mentioned. So, but yeah, gradually it's been building up and up in terms of busyness, really. And it's not been an enjoyable experience leading up to the pandemic, to be honest. Just, And what I mean by that is kind of patient demand, patient numbers. You know, when you used to start your job, you could be that old-fashioned. Even back in 2014, you'd be that mm. um, cradle-to-grave GP. You'd, you'd get to know your patients well. Now it becomes a treadmill towards the sort of front end of the pandemic, as it were, uh, and sort of losing that love for the job because of just having to see so many numbers. I mean, there's been days even pre-pandemic where you have to see 60 to 70 patients a day. Wow. So, you know, you, you see somebody who's depressed, it can, t- you know, it can de-energise you and then you call the next person in, they think they've got cancer, the next person's depressed again, and then the, somebody's got skin issue and you just go in, you know, you've got your dermatology hat on and your gynecology hat on and that's just the life of a general practitioner, you know, that's what you sign up for. But um, yeah, it's, it's kind of the last few years have become very much heavily weighted towards um, a lot of mental health actually, but just uh, people with lists of problems because access is so poor, people will pull out the, you know, the receipt reels worth of six problems to deal with in 10 minutes. So mm. you don't ever feel like you're doing the job to the uh, utmost, you know, and that's not what you signed up for. And that was pre-pandemic. So it was wobbling just before then. And then so, the pandemic started. So, yeah, pandemic hits. Beginning of 2020, you're there like any member of the public as well. You are uh, an individual as well as a, a GP, but you mm. see obviously some of the stories coming out, uh, crazy things happening out of China. So uh, what th- kind of, how is a, a GP? Were you thinking, oh no, this is going to increase workload. This is something else coming down the line. How did you kind of see this early in 2020 developing? Yeah, so it was quite... Um... And the first thing I would say is quiet. So I really did notice very early on, you know, you know, we're all gripped by fear. Um, you know, we're, we're told, you know, we've got this killer virus on the loose. Um, we went straight away. We went to this kind of complete telephone triage, which we're still doing even now, two and a bit years on, where you're not seeing patients anymore because of the risk of catching this deadly virus. And from that, 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 that's when I experienced what I call the England game effects in previous interviews. So when England are playing, people don't take their coughs and sore throats down to A&E or the urgent mm. care centre. They stay away. And it, it really was, you know, you expect when you watch the BBC and the ITV that you're going to see, you know, thousands of people in their droves collapsing, coughing up their lungs and blood and whatnot, and collapsing like you saw the the videos of uh, yeah. people collapsing in the streets in Wuhan, it, it, Italy. You're watching the news of these kind of people in hazmat suits in ITU. And actually, on the coalface, it's very quiet. 
um, you know, probably a third, a third of the appointments were gone in terms of being filled. Two thirds went vacant. Um, and so I filled a lot of my time then by, um, I joined up with a, a political person in the area that I lived in in Birmingham, a, a politician. And we, you know, we were, you know, at the time we were banging our pans and pots at a certain time of day. You know, I, I took that opportunity to take, you know, fast food deliveries down to the hospitals and the wards and the ITUs and the yeah. COVID wards and greeted by exactly the same experience that I did during the day, during my primary care experience of quiet wards, quiet A&Es, doctors TikToking, you know, no patients on the COVID wards. Now, at that time, I took a job, actually, at the Nightingale Hospital in Birmingham. Yeah. Um, got the letter saying, you've got a job. That's the last I heard. <laughs> Didn't hear from them again. So it's kind of like, yeah, it's very quiet in that first part of the pandemic. And then I made the move down here. So I did. I just did a long, you know, one of the things at that point in the Midlands was that, you know, there wasn't anything coming through about how do we deal with this yeah. deadly virus? What, what are the treatments here? deadly silent you know we were being given really cursory ways of assessing patients based upon can they breathe or can they not breathe if they couldn't breathe you'd send them into hospital um, and they'd be ventilated never to be seen again um, and the death certificates would come through COVID-19 and you know at that time you were sending people in with strokes and heart attacks um, you know they'd had surgery neck and neck of femur fractures and they'd die and you get the certificates come out from patients that you knew had gone in for other reasons come out with a COVID death certificate and that was kind of my first kind of radar went up at that point that the certification process because at the time I used to do a lot of part two um, uh, reporting so when somebody passes away me as the part two doctor would then question the doctor who verified and certified okay. death from pretty much day one you know we're expecting the bodies to pile on um, yeah. you know the, the funeral pyres in the street essentially and then they took that part one doctor part two doctor away um, which was a kind of safeguarding really so people don't miss certify um, and to kind of stop the Harold Shipmans of this generation really to put what they want on the death certificate so due diligence really and that's never returned to be honest Peter and we're still not verifying mm. when we're not certifying deaths in the same way that safety net's gone even to this day um, and so that was kind of a warning to me that actually this, this is a little bit odd you know that you know, very non-specific symptoms we were given so anyone had a cough for example just prior to their death oh you put COVID down just because they coughed you know people tend to cough when they uh they're taking their last breath. Um, and so you heard some of the conversations in the coffee room, you heard some of the conversations between colleagues, um, what shall I put down for the death certificate, Mrs. Jones? And they'd say, oh, she was very healthy. She sort of collapsed at the toilet. Um, she coughed a few times the day before. We'll put COVID-19 now. So I just heard this kind of slapdash approach to certification of deaths. And that was my first clue really as to not all seem right. And and you said you weren't given any. I, I would expect doctors to be given advice if there is some virus, then this is how you treat it. Um, yeah. But yeah. you weren't you weren't given that. You were just told if they sound very sick, then they go to hospital type of thing. There wasn't a a, a level of treatment or a list. Yeah, of I mean, it's, it's really very arbitrary. What we did, we we had to do something called the Roth score. Probably the only guidance I've had through the first year of the pandemic, not about treatments or early interventions. It was about assess if they're hypoxic or not low oxygen levels i.e they can't breathe and they can't oxygenate the blood so what we were getting the patient to do you know ring up they've got a cough and they can't breathe you get them to take a gasp of air in breathe out and then count to 30 as quickly as they can without inhaling again if they got to 30 then they were classed as having sats of 100 if they got halfway there you'd estimate that their sats were 90 percent. send them into hospital that's probably all the guidance i've ever had throughout the whole of the pandemic do a Roth score on your patients. If they fail, send them in. If they don't, keep them at home and give them, you know, honey and lemon paracetamol 
all that malarkey. And that was probably it. You know, I've never, ever in the two years I've been going in all of it, received any guidance. You know, in my own private study, obviously we know there's rocks and rocks of evidence on cheap, affordable, natural, highly evidenced things like the ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine that gets a lot of the focus. But simple things like vitamin D, zinc, you know, some of the trace elements, you know, some miracle cures in terms of things that boost your immune system. There was never any talk on it and there was never any meetings either. I don't remember in the first year of the pandemic ever having a meeting, considering the goalposts were changing from hour to hour, you know, day to day. You get an email probably once a week. That was it. There was never any face-to-face meetings. And so then I moved down to here to, to kind of get away from the madness. Um, so tell me, when when did you begin to maybe question some of the information, either in the media or to health practitioners? When did you begin to ask questions and say you're not sure if what you're hearing is necessarily correct yeah like i say it's that comparison when you were working in the day and it was very quiet and going home flicking on the tv and seeing a very different story and that was a daily instance you'd think you'd see these kind of stricken itu workers and i'm not saying that didn't happen there were some sick people that were told that they had covid and managed in the way the covid protocols um, led, led them to be managed with the, the ventilation processes and the, the putting them on the front, putting them on the back. So that was a kind of clue. I mean, the real awakening for me, I mean, I, I was complicit. I've been vaccinated. I don't know if you know that. I had two vaccines for two mm. very different reasons. The first reason was a friend succumbed to what I was told was COVID. Um, the plot was a lot thicker than that. You know, there's a lot of ITU. Um, I'll say it as it is, manhandling of her, yeah. my best friend. So, I mean, I took that vaccine pretty much two or three days after having heard that my best friend had succumbed to COVID-19. Why wouldn't I? It was a fear response. And then about probably eight, nine weeks later, you get a tap on the shoulder from your bosses saying, Dr. Carton, you're going to need to have the second one, um, the second vaccine. And at that point, I kind of dodged it, ran away, tried to hide. You know, I've never been chased around with a flu syringe, interestingly. (laughs) And it's like, do you want it? No, okay, and so we move on. But with the COVID, it was a vendetta, you need to have this. And it's kind of like a threat to your job. You know, I'd never, ever heard about mandating a medical treatment to that point. So I think at that moment when I had that tap on the shoulder, that was when I thought, when have we ever forced people, you know, for secondary gain, i.e. to keep the freedoms that, you know, to work, to travel, et cetera, et cetera. And all of that mandate stuff was coming in around sacking NHS staff, carers. And I succumbed to it. I succumbed to the pressure of purely selfish reasons. Um, Took the vaccine. Um, I didn't mention that I had a really bad reaction to the first one. I was in bed for days with a bad headache. So I was really reluctant, but me and the wife sat down, took a pact, you know, I'm the main breadwinner at that time, took it. And actually it was pretty seamless, the second one, but there was a high level of coercion. And then only about eight weeks after that, you need to have another one. I think that's when the penny dropped and it dropped at exactly the same time as then, probably about September, just gone um, last year. I noticed that a lot of people that were positive for COVID were the treble jabbed. Or the double jabbed, I think it would have been at the time. So yeah. I was just kind of asking my colleagues, you know, are you guys seeing this? Are you guys seeing the the high numbers of positives being in the vaccinated cohort? It would have been doubled at that time. So I did an audit and found that pretty much every person I audited out of 150 people over a two-week period were all fully vaccinated. And there wasn't a single unvaccinated. So I took that to my bosses and said, look, how do you explain this? And they said, well, it's because the unvaccinated don't care much for their health, so they haven't been testing themselves. That was the best part from, from 60 years of medical experience between my two colleagues. And I went back wow. to the data and proved that that was a load of nonsense as well because 70%, I think it was, of the negative tests that we collated for that two weeks were in the completely unvaccinated. So they just weren't getting COVID. 
And so that was going on and then starting to see a lot of clocks coming through and lo and behold, you see a clock and you look at the notes, double vaccinated, you know, yeah. cancer referrals coming through. And I said, you know, you do a cancer referral once in a blue moon um, and you know you do it because you lose your lunch break to it because it's a long form, long winded and you have to make sure you give it to somebody and you have to email it to somebody and let everyone, you know, every man and his dog needs to know. So when you're doing four or five of these a week, when you previously did two or three a month at a push, you know, then you're asking questions of your colleagues. And are we auditing blood clots? Are we auditing who's getting COVID and who's not and how poorly they are? Um, are we auditing cancer referrals? Because you guys must be seeing what I'm seeing. I've seen a lot of reactive arthritis within a short vicinity um, of, of the vaccine. And then, then there was a really big day in, in the whole process for me where we had, within a week, we had two women in their 40s die within a week of the vaccine. One was four days, one was seven days, and it was the AstraZeneca jab. And the, the, the day that I remember reading the post-mortem of this second lady, who was both were completely fit and healthy, by the way, um, the same day I got a call from the neurosurgical registrar from a hospital here called Derriford, um, saying that one of our male patients had uh, got a blood clot on his brain. And I looked at his notes and he had a, the vaccine 24 hours before. So you can imagine this, this doctor sat in his room two and a half days a week being peppered by you know, yeah. people having lots of pathology popping up out of nowhere. Um, you know, and, you know, I know you can't ever, you know, attribute causality. It's just a correlation at that point. But, you know, no one was interested in auditing this. I remember getting shrugged shoulders. I took that particular week's worth of incidents from the AstraZeneca jab to my boss at the time and said, look, we need to at least at the very least stop AstraZeneca. And they spent they, they, they spent that whole week vaccinating people with AstraZeneca. Um, and that just didn't seem right. And, you know, further down the line, as the plots thickened, uh, I've spoke to patient, uh, doctors about vaccinating their children and saying, look, don't get your kids vaccinated. This is the evidence. There's no case for it. Look at the data on myocarditis. You know, and if you got two minutes with them, you were doing well. Most people would call you a conspiracy theorist and walk out. And that's why I eventually had to leave the job in the end, because I created a kind of atmosphere of, you know, that I was a bit of a pest to people presenting them with this dastardly evidence, really. Um, well, I mean, I, I, I've been amazed talking to different doctors who I know, um, I know well, and... I seem to know more about vaccines and what's available and possible side effects than than they do. And I remember one doctor, they were going in for their third jab. And I said, well, which one are you going to get? And they said, well, which, whatever one's available on the day. I said, so you don't actually know what you'll get injected with? Oh, just one of them. It'll be fine. And I don't know about you, the conversations you've you've mentioned some of them with with those in the medical profession. I thought those in the medical profession would be the most switched on, but often they seem to be the most switched off. Yeah, the people that I get the most joy from are the people who, you know, aren't the senior medics, who aren't yeah. the policymakers. You know, the coffee room successes I have, even in the last couple of weeks, have been the junior nurses and the vaccinators that are thinking, I mean, I had a really good conversation last Monday with a group of nurses. I mean, I started the conversation, it was a full audience. So I delivered my sermon on vaccine safety over coffee and all of the senior doctors screwed out of the room quicker than grease lightning. You wouldn't believe how, le how quickly they left. And you could see in their eyes, they knew what was coming and they just didn't want to hear it. I was left behind a room of um, vaccinating nurses um, and they were utterly stunned as I presented the Pfizer data. I mean, firstly, they didn't know that Pfizer would try to hide the data away. You know, interestingly as well, last week I bumped into the person who vaccinated me. So I had a, a complete chance moment with the lady that vaccinated me and um, asked her a few simple questions. I'm sure she should have answered when she put the needle into my arm, but didn't have a clue it was mRNA, didn't have a clue it was gene therapy, didn't have a clue it was a novel technology, didn't have a clue about the Pfizer data. She vaccinated me with the Pfizer jab. 
didn't know about the fact that Pfizer took an emergency use authorization out and right. tried to hide their data for 75 years. Not the basics, let alone any depth of knowledge about the ONS data, the MHRA data, you know, anything. And, you know, all I got was, you know, I've got a busy life, Dave. I haven't got time to read all this stuff like you have um, and all that nonsense as well. It's like I do it for fun. You know, I do it because I'm a doctor that's took an oath and to keep up to date with evidence-based medicine. You know, so reading, you know, the odd paper here and there to keep up to date is professional duty. I don't think you get a choice over that. Um, but people have opted out over the last years, probably 99% of my profession have. So, yeah, I've had some no, few successes, but... No, it's uh, I, I'm surprised at that response from the public often that no, I'm I'm too busy. Well, you'll sit and watch whatever an hour or two in the evening. Uh, you'll read the the metro, the rubbish free paper, or whatever in the morning, but you won't actually yeah. look into things a bit more deeply. Um, you know, it's really we, easy to find it, Peter. As well, it's easy. Google yeah. search ONS data. I know sometimes it's hidden away. Most of these things are hidden in plain sight, but. You know, very easy to find the ONS updated. You know, look at the last month's data, look at the morbidity, mortality, look at the blood clot data, and myocarditis. Not hard to find if, if people want to know it. You know, you don't have to be a statistician. Tell, uh, tell us more because, again, you talked about people injecting their kids. And uh, I kind of thought, although it's difficult to know what data we're being given and uptake is correct or not, but I just would have assumed that parents after being told that actually children are not really at a high risk, but 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 you should, but you should, um, in no. case you kill granny type of thing. I thought no. most people would have thought, well, I'll get it as an adult, but, you know, I'll think twice about maybe getting it for my child. I'll think a little bit more deeply. But most people have rushed off and get their j kids jabbed as much as they can. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing. So uh, two parts to that, really. Isn't it? The first part is doctors. So asking doctors, are you going to get your own children vaccinated? And again, a bit like the example I used before um, about the AstraZeneca jab and then going off, hearing about harm and then going off and vaccinating with that self-same jab. You'd speak to colleagues who would listen, who would hear you out about myocarditis, for example, and say, oh, that's higher than I thought. One in 16, 80, that's quite a risk. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't vaccinate my own children. I've, I've heard that a million times. Yet those people who spill that, those words from their mouth will then go down the vaccine centre and vaccinate your children. You know, and all I keep saying is, you know, this safe and effective claim that people have safe and effective, safe and effective, they, they don't afford the same privilege that they expect from me. They expect me to reference and give data for absolutely everything that comes out of my mouth. However, they can bleat safe and effective completely without any evidence. And this is what I say to people now at the vaccine centre. If somebody says those hallowed words, safe and effective, ask them for the data. I've been asking it for 12 months and I'll get a deadly silence. You know, there, you know there's some protesters went to our local vaccine centre and all they were were scared, worried parents saying, give yeah. me the data. Is it safe? Is it effective? If so, why? How? You're the doctor. The burden of proof's on you here. You're the one injecting my child. You know, you should be in blank faces, you know, and they could get rid of this angry mob very easily by giving them the aforementioned data. Never happened. You know, a lot of the doctors just took the phones out and started recording the protesters. Just it's a, this, it's a strange mentality amongst my colleagues at the moment that I just can't explain that dissonance of not, you know, hearing about harm, hearing about, you know, having that comment about I wouldn't vaccinate my own children, but vaccinating yours. That, that was one of the trigger points of my exit from that surgery. In the end, I resigned because I couldn't work with these people. Is it partly because just an absolute blind trust in authority? Is it also partly because maybe a, a GP surgery, they they may not be given certain drugs? I, 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 I don't know how it works. So uh, trying to work out what lies behind that blind faith. 
I think, yeah, I mean, you're led to just believe in pharma as a religion, really. You're kind of brought up in that atmosphere when you're at med school. It's that religion of big pharma. Everything's all about algorithms and guidelines. And at the very end of each pathway, there lies a drug, you know. And so you kind of, I've fallen into that myself. I slip back into my old ways occasionally, you know, a pill for every year. Um, and, and you just realise that it becomes a kind of second nature to, you know, it's a good way to end a, a, a consultation when you've only got seven or eight minutes with the patient. Here's your pill give the script, end of the consult, then they move on, on to the next patient. So, yeah, there is that kind of aspect. Then, you know, there's a financial aspect. You know, they get paid well for it per jab. Um, the, the third thing is they're obviously, they've received the vaccine themselves. And if they've received the vaccine themselves, then not only have they been conned, you know, and it's, yeah. it's not human nature to admit you're wrong, is it? Uh, and then not only have they been conned, but they've passed that con on to other people and gone, you know, vaccinating man, woman and child, anything that moves without evidence you know you ask these people what's the evidence Where, where's the safety data in pregnancy do you know do, do you know the name of the trial what country it was done in and i know the answer it wasn't done <laughs> um but they they just don't know but they're still saying safe and effective and you can tie them up very easily in knots i've tied some very senior people up with simple data they just don't know it so yeah there is that kind of buyer's remorse no there's really, um, i think the the first thing that made me wake up and think i remember looking at the astrazeneca and then slowly talks came out about blood clots and then i thought well i'm no rush no rush to get that but then when they talked about uh pregnant women um not not pregnant people like you told david vance that was a slip of the tongue <laughs> but um pregnant women um on the, so I, I went to see what's on the NHS website, nhs.uk forward slash pregnancy. And it says most medicines taken during pregnancy cross a placenta and reach the baby before taking any medication when you're pregnant, including painkillers, check with your pharmacist, midwife or GP that it's suitable. So even, even on that, it's they're warning you what you get goes to your baby. So uh, just that little thought should make most mums yeah. with the child think actually I, I don't know if i i need to check up on this but again that hasn't happened and it scares me that our government governments around the world health officials around the world have just said pregnant women no no go for it you get a job i'm sure it'll be fine yeah i'll give you a great example to demonstrate that point so there was a lady who was a member of staff at a surgery that i worked at as a locum pregnant quite obviously um by a, a body shape and she asked me for some treatment for a hay fever and for a hemorrhoids actually and i said just get yourself down the pharmacy get some anisole uh, which is an ointment and get yourself loratadine um and, and that'll be fine that should sort you out it's all safe i mean most drugs in the bnf the british national formula we say for anything you know the, the data isn't there you know it might be paracetamol you know they'll say it's not known to be harmful that's what they'll say but the studies don't show either way so the point i was making about the anisole and the loratadine common drugs pick them up from the pound shop um, sent this lady down to the pharmacist who refused to give it to her um, and said, you need a prescription from the doctor because of the safety data lacking. I mean, we're only talking about an ointment here and an hay fever tablet. Anyway, that same vaccinator was most likely to be one of the chief vaccinators for the area, you know, and so slight double standards, you know, that they're demanding a script for anusol, yet happy to give three doses of gene therapy. And, you know, that data around pregnancy, really simple to explain to people. Um, they excluded from the Pfizer data all pregnant women. Well, in fact, they excluded everyone who had any comorbidity whatsoever. It was a study on healthy cohort. But the one thing that they did do was exclude breastfeeding women and pregnant women. However, birds and the bees, 270 people got pregnant during the trial. 
um, females, sorry, not people. <laughs> I keep saying that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, so out of those 270 people, they looked at adverse events, and to cut a long story short, one in four women had reported a severe adverse event out of that 270, one in four. And then of the births, they looked at the births and fetal outcomes. They lost 238 to follow up. They couldn't, um, they couldn't find the mums. I don't think. I don't know what happened there, but they just lost them to follow up. I mean, it's not hard to keep track of 270 women, is it? Uh, but anyway, the 32 remaining, five were still pregnant at the time of the report. 27 births left to account for. There was one live birth out of the 27. 26 deaths of children, babies, you know, and how that ever made it to be the opposite, you know, the claim that you see in from your GP's own lips, from the Royal Lobs and Gynae College, uh, from the British Society of Immunology mm -hmm. saying there are no known issues around vaccinating your, yourself when you're pregnant. It's completely safe and effective. 100% some people quote. How can they say that when their own trials showed that? You know, it's absolutely blows your mind as a doctor in amongst this craziness. And that was the Pfizer data you said? That was the Pfizer data, yeah. You know, the same data they tried to hide for 75 years. Well, I mean, that, that's... Still confidence that, like that. But, but that whole data dump, it's you would think it's done in a way that actually it's quite difficult to delve into because there's just so much. It's like you go to... Uh, 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 through a legal avenue to a court or something and you get dumped with just box and boxes of stuff and you know the document you're looking for is somewhere inside that and just an yeah. attempt to hide it in plain sight. Uh, the first dump, I mean, I gave up after, I mean, I skim read the second dump. It was just thousands and thousands of pages. The first lot was a small package and I made sure I read every page. And you know what? It's really deep in that data. You find some real headliners, you know, and one of the things I shared, I mean, again, I got done for misinformation and I did an interview with Sonia Poulton where I held the pages up to the camera, read them out from the MHRA, JCBI, government websites. Um, so you can't really do much, much better due diligence than actually reading these things out. Um, I forgot what I was going to say now. It's yeah, so what, what's like, what does it mean that you, so how has this affected you? You, you said you've got into issues. Um, what has it meant for you simply asking questions to your professional career? Yeah, so at the surgery that I resigned at, I became a bit of a pest to people. And, all you know, I tried everything from doing the correct things to go to your practice manager, who, again, would secretly agree with you, actually resigned over the mandate, but then took a job back again. Um, afterwards so uh, and, and you put the partners at the surgery would agree with you privately you know you go out for a beer with them chat over a pint and you know they'd agree with you on certain things I mean the reason I did quit was that both both senior partners looked me in the eye and said we will not be vaccinating children at this surgery and they didn't lie because they didn't actually do it in that building but what they did they set on their website you know a signpost to the surgery down the road to take your children there and that was the last one for me but in the run-up to that you know, all I was trying to do was present the data, the very early data where things weren't right. You know, you look at what a vaccine is supposed to do, it's supposed to stop you catching and spreading a disease, stop you getting really poorly and stop you dying. I mean, I've stopped publishing that data now because it, it's become that blatant week by week, month by month that, you know, on all three outcomes, it fails miserably. It doesn't do what it says on the tin. And so you kind of try to reason with the guys that are vaccinating pregnant women and children at that point. And saying, look, this data, even in the non-pregnant and the and, and the non-children of this world, you know, they were going younger and younger. Bearing in mind, you know, 84 was the average age of death for COVID. You know, so why are we going for these younger cohorts? There's just nothing that will convince me that they needed. And you look at the actual death figures of children and pregnant women that have died within 28 days. I mean, even that in itself has been a real difficult one to try and get doctors to realise that that's just such a terrible way of, you know, of, of 
categorizing deaths in a pandemic situation, death within 28 days. So yeah, so I kind of made these, what I thought were quite logical points about three things, pregnancy, children, and basic ethics. So I was around the vaccine centers a lot, watching what was going on and observing the informed consent process, which was, hi, Mrs. Jones, um, are you pregnant? Laughing about that, because Mrs. Jones was 89, you know, made a little joke about it, asked if she'd had any previous reactions to the other vaccine that she had. Um, and I think even if she reported a vaccine, you know, fit after the vaccine, she would have still got the vaccine anyway. Uh, and then, you know, the, the needle was in and the syringe was pressed out and moved on to the, it was like cattle herding at the end. And, you know, each time you could hear the till going ka-ching, 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 yeah. you know, making more money. So I kind of fell out for calling these obvious things out. And, you know, I've stood for basic medical ethics around informed consent, you know, refusal of consent. You know, we may not agree with patients, but we have to present both sides of the discussion. And it was always very one-sided. It was always safe and effective, 100% fine. You know, lying to patients, saying that the data's there for its safe and effectiveness. The data isn't there in a vast majority of cases. Um, and so, yeah, obviously didn't go down well in the um, in the, the arenas, the coffee rooms. You know, people would march out, call you a conspiracy theorist. Obviously, that's quite attritional to you. You know, when all you're yeah. trying to do is look for patient safety and try and help your colleagues. And they were quoting the BBC and I was quoting the BMJ, you know, and, and you just, what are you doing? You know, they'd, they'd come out with a comment like, a, what about Kawasaki disease? Okay. What about Kawasaki disease? Oh, I don't know. I just heard it on the radio this morning on BBC Radio 4. I said, this is what medicine's become, that you are quoting the BBC and actually not quoting what the content of that interview was. So you were hardly listening. And that, that's what doctors have done these these last few years, de-skilled. They've not got the finger on the pulse anymore. And I'm, I'm kind of an anomaly that I do. I read papers day in, day out, keep up to date, day in, day out. And for that, I've become a leper to the medical society. And, you know, I've been, my, my friends, my nurses, my colleagues, even my family, kind of like shunned me, to be honest, for this. So. Yeah, well, I, 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 I would, the, the British Brainwashing Corporation has done its job then. But you're right, how people, it's strange how people shun you because you just ask questions you don't go along i, I the one thing that actually sh really well many things surprised me i remember having a conversation with a friend and they hated boris johnson they hated the conservative government hated them with a the passion matt hancock they couldn't say a single nice word about but yet they would go and do what they were told to do and i always find that strange that they hated this individual didn't trust them but they would get injected with whatever they were told. Um, mm. And I guess it's it's fear. And I guess you, you see the same thing, that people just become so caught up with fear that they will do anything they're told to do. Yeah, of course. And it's that group thing. You know, everyone, once they're in the, in, in the throes of fear, you know, you do what you need to do instinctively to be saved. And if the government are saying it's this well-researched, safe and effective, you know, you expect, I mean... GPs aren't big farmers, you know, that they, they, they don't know the studies, they just presume, as I do when I prescribe something, you know, you presume it's gone through the rigorous trials, but you know yourself, when you, you get a vaccine out there, not only was this one ready to go within seconds of the pandemic being called, you know, it was, it was a bit too too quick, really, for my liking. And then, you know, you look at how long it takes for a normal vaccine to be produced, and it's anything from mm. six to ten years to go through the various phases. This was ready in two minutes flat. Uh, and not only that, it wasn't just targeting certain populations, it was targeting the world's population in reverse age order. Then they started going for the pregnancy um, cohort. So, yeah, it's really difficult to get your head around. And, I mean, the first thing you do in pregnant patients is 
pregnant women is that you take them off their medicines you take them off their medicines you just don't run the risk yet it seems to be okay to give them this gene therapy patients don't know they're getting the gene therapy yeah. you know again that's what i meant to say when i was talking about the interview where i was holding the paper up in the sex submission documents from pfizer and moderna it talks about their own product the self-same pfizer jab moderna jab as a gene therapy and it talks about a lot of the difficulties in bringing an mrna gene therapy to to um to market safely mm-hmm. and, you know deep 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 on page something like 360 something you know it says that these these products are not only difficult to safely produce but on mass we cannot i think the quote was something like we cannot guarantee um you know the safety across batch numbers and we're seeing that now because it was done so quickly you're seeing big correlations between batches that are contaminated under the microscope batch numbers associated with high mortality high morbidity you see little clusters on the news don't you occasionally where a certain school that had the vaccine or the kids are dropping down having fits the head teachers drop down having a fit all within 12 hours 24 hours of having that vaccine that was in darlington i think that's school and then you know if you look at things like how bad is my batch you know there's a website pfizer have actually just released in their latest dump you know there's big correlations between you know certain lot numbers lots of interest interesting one of one of my vaccines is in that vaccine lot of interest unfortunately um but you know you get big correlations where you know other vials have got well other lot numbers have got zero problems or one or two and others have got 200 300 you know issues related to them so that's that shows a lack of uniformity between what's in this vial compared to that vial you know, and that's just not good science. It's just not good production. I mean, people report there's shards of this, that, and the other in the liquid, yeah. in the bits yeah. of plastic, you know, in the production process that it wasn't because it was being done so quick and so shabbily, uh, just like their research was being done. They were losing large swathes of people from their trials, yeah. losing them to follow up, like the pregnancy data I just mentioned. It's just unacceptable when it comes to, you know, the brevity of what they're doing, the project, vaccinate the world. You need to have a little bit of due diligence, you know, and a bit of, Good science on the go, but nothing. No, there's a, a, a rush, a rush to market and to make money. But the you, I mean, you posted as well about all the stories about heart attacks being warned, adult death syndrome, um, and uh, when you go back to people, I guess you're still finding medical colleagues are still not connecting the dots. I mean, to just accept heart attacks is norm. I think a week ago it was that. Is social media increasing Z generation's heart attacks by 30%? Yeah, it's everything. Wow. I mean, they've been conditioning. I mean, the, the, these these kind of mainstream medias and, and newspapers, are, are, are absolutely. I don't know how they get to print these things. Like, you know, the heat is causing more heart attacks. The referees whistle at football. Your high high energy bills are causing heart attacks. The, the, the volume on your alarm switch, if it goes off too early... You know, these are all going to, if, if you make your bed in a certain way, it's going to cause a heart attack, almost conditioning you to it. I mean, that's what I'm trying to speak to colleagues now down the angle of, you know, we're not just seeing, forget part COVID, you know, if you're completely dissonant about anything because you say COVID, then let's look at all cause mortality. More people are dying, younger and younger. The funeral directors are saying it, the insurance companies are saying it across the world, you know, and, and you know, you're seeing graves, you know, popping up all over the place. You know, all cause mortality is shot up. And it's shot up in line with the vaccination schedule, I'm afraid. And, you know, that's pretty clear from the statistics that are being presented by cleverer people than me. Uh, but it's quite clear that more people are dying. And it just happens to hinge around the time when the vaccine schedule came in. And it correlates with each dose, you know, and they've gone for the second vaccine dose. And then you see a sort of 
uptick in the all cause mortality thereafter of mm. sudden adult death syndrome. I mean, never heard that phrase in my life. I mean, again, somebody drops down dead or doesn't wake up from the sleep. Um, heard about a case today. Somebody contacted me about a, a, a relative, a cousin, didn't wake up in the morning. Again, death certificate just says sudden adult death syndrome. My heart just dropped. You don't just go to bed and not wake up. It happens, we know. But how many coincidences are we seeing at the moment on the sports field, for example? You know, I keep seeing all these montages of people giving speeches, politicians. I think there was an Arab guy speaking the other week and he's talking. Um, a sheikh somewhere in, um, I can't remember where it was now, but he just went down. You're seeing yeah. lots of footage of people just going about their daily business and drop into the deck. You know, it's just, I've never seen it in my life. You know, I watch a lot of football and sport. Never seen, you know, the, the stoppages that we see now. Um, of you know these are prime athletes and, and it's not only athletes it's people like the in the army you look at the department of defense data um you know the army in america they're reporting massive numbers of not only the cardiac stuff but everything from men, men menstrual problems to, mm. to neurological problems the numbers are in multitudes of percentages compared to previously and no one's investigating these links because they don't want to know. I mean, imagine the uproar now if it does turn out that this that we're all right about yeah. this. I don't even want to contemplate what that's going to do to society. No, I've um, I had a depressing conversation with John O'Looney a couple of weeks ago, and that that was that was dark. But can I ask you about you've you've obviously put yourself out there. You've been there. I'm sure there are other doctors who have concerns who have just kept their heads down. You've said, well. I need to talk about this. I need to put forward what I think is happening and raise those concerns publicly. Tell me kind of what that's been like for for you doing that because it's uh, um, you kind of as a doctor, it's it's private. You're there one to one with your patients. Suddenly, you find yourself doing interviews and talking to people all across the world. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been a tricky point in my career. Like I say, I'm only standing for basics. I'm not deep in, you know, diving deeply into these things with people. It's basic medical ethics, children and, and pregnant um, women, really, that should really grab the heartstrings of even the hardened vaxaholics, really. So, you know, I mean, I've, the people that really upset me the most are the ones that do listen to me and say, absolutely, Dave, you're right. It makes absolute sense. And then you, sat, you ask them a simple question, are you prepared to speak out? Bear in mind, we're talking about your patients here, patient safety. And they say, oh, well, we've seen what, what's happened to you. Admire your bravery. And, you know, the GMC have been after you. NHS England have been after you. And, mm. you know, I don't really want to put myself through that. And I've got a mortgage. Well, newsflash, I've got a mortgage as well. I've got a family. I've got four children. Yeah. You know, but I took an oath. I took an oath. And I, I, I mean to stand by that oath. I don't know how much the oath means to... 99.9% of my colleagues, but they must be seeing what I'm seeing. Um, and it's just cowardly as far as I'm concerned. And that's what I spent a lot of time the last couple of weeks. That's why I've had a second wind in my interviews of calling these people out because it can stop this tomorrow. If all the nurses and doctors just stood up and said, stop, there's absolutely no need to vaccinate children to start with, pregnant women, but, you know, healthy adults, you know, what happened to, you know, the healthy herd immunity or natural immunity, um, you know, obviously that doesn't make Big Pharma a lot of money, but we could stop it tomorrow. So I just urge any viewers that are medical or on the fence that you need to remember that history will not be too kind to you when you look back. Things like thalidomide, you look back two years later, that was marketed as safe and effective. I mean, this yeah. is thalidomide on steroids, really. This is going to be, there's going to be repercussions for this. And you've got to choose which side of the fence you want to sit on. Somebody stood up for their oath, patient safety, and, you know, spared half an hour just to get up to date with the statistics each night. And, you know, join me in this fight because there's about, in the UK, there's probably about 
15, 20 of us speaking out. All of us have had a hard time of it. Yeah. And all we're trying to do is do become be the model doctors that we were trained to be. You know, and all the other people skulking around in the shadows and tapping you on the shoulder and saying, oh, I do agree, but I just don't want the drama, really. I'm just coasting to... Um, and I had that the other day. I spoke to a 66-year-old doctor, completely agreed with everything, but just said, so close to retiring, Dave, you know. I work with you on this particular matter, but just, you know, I just I'm, I need my pension. That, that, to me, I mean, that just smacks of career doctor, the same as career politician. Yeah. You know, yeah. I keep saying to people, when you have your shower in the morning, you're getting your scrubs on or your nurse's tunic, look yourself in the eyes and say, why did I become a nurse? Why be, did I become a doctor? What are my aims for today that you want to make people better help them? We'll do that do that self-same thing and stop vaccinating people that don't need to be vaccinated and remember the disease we're vaccinating against now is a kind of pussycat compared to if even if it was anything you know it's fizzled yep. out basic virology it's fizzled out to the dying embers of a pandemic why are we chasing these children why are we chasing people that you would not normally chase with vaccines particularly experimental ones so that's what i ask of my colleagues and um, just appeal to them to speak out and do the right thing well Dr. David Cardin, thank you for coming along and thank you for your bravery and calling out what you see. So thank you. And um, I know you'll continue to many interviews and letting the public know from your point of view, from a medical uh, point of view, what is happening. So thank you for coming along and sharing your thoughts today. No, thanks for having me. Not all. And just let me finish off with our viewers. They can, of course, find you at Dr. Cartland on Getter. Uh, make sure and add uh, David to that list of people you follow and you'll be kept up to speed in what has been happening. So do that. And to our viewers and our listeners, a pre-record. So if you're listening on Podbean or the podcasting platforms, thank you. If you're watching on any of the video platforms, uh, this will, of course, not be on YouTube or Twitter, but on anything else on Brand YouTube, on Getter, on Odyssey, on Rumble, on uh, anything else, then thank you for watching and please do share. So on that, I'll wish our viewers and listeners a wonderful rest of your day and we'll see you for the next interview very soon. So thank you so much for watching and goodbye. If you like what we do, sign up to our mailing list. Donate, share, and subscribe to our many platforms at heartsofoak.org. Thank you for listening.